The Origins of Dune by Frank Herbert, edited by Tim O'Reilly. There is no question that the Dune series has generated far more interest and acclaim than anything else Frank has written. It is worthwhile to read the following pieces for this reason alone. They provide insights into some of the roots of one of the most celebrated of all science fiction works. They also illuminate directly one of Frank's most powerful and unconventional ideas, that the heroes, who were the stock-in-trade not only of science fiction but of a great deal of popular literature, can lead us into a dangerous way of thinking. While we need the models that heroes provide, our faith in them can undercut faith in ourselves and can eat away at the self-reliance we need to cope with the real world. Many readers of the Dune series have complained that Paul Atreides, the hero of the first novel, is tarnished in the second and by the third, is made to seem an ineffectual failure. They share the puzzlement of John Campbell, the legendary science fiction editor, who had first published Dune but refused the sequel, Dune Messiah, and wonder at apparent changes in Herbert's vision. The pieces included in this section show unequivocally that the master plan of the initial Dune trilogy was largely in place from the beginning. Volumes following Children of Dune in the series were conceived later. The first piece, Dangers of the Superhero, is based on two separate reminiscences, one written for liner notes on Frank's first Cademan recording of passages from Dune, the banquet scene, and the second to accompany the publication of John Schoenher's Dune illustrations in Omni magazine. It lays out Frank's theory about the danger of superheroes and messiahs. The second piece, The Sparks Have Flown, covers the history of the Dune trilogy from a somewhat different angle. It is based on two interviews, one by Professor Willis McNelly of California State University at Fullerton in 1968, and one which I did with Frank in New York about nine years later. These interviews touch on a wide range of subjects related to the origin of various aspects of Dune. In McNelly's interview, Frank points out that he loaded Dune with hints that were not developed in the story, but which he hoped readers would find so interesting that they would continue to flesh them out in their own imagination. Probably the surest sign that Frank succeeded at this is the Dune Encyclopedia, a collection of imaginative extensions to the history, ecology, and philosophy of Dune, contributed by readers and edited by McNelly. The Campbell Correspondence is a fascinating exchange of letters between John Campbell and Frank Herbert. In his initial acceptance of the manuscript of Dune, Campbell puts his finger right on what he considers a weakness in the plotting of the Dune trilogy. In fact, as Frank replies, the weakness is an essential part of the plot to be revealed in the sequel. The final piece, the liner notes to Frank's second record for Cademan, Sandworms of Dune, gives some additional background on the shamanistic significance of the sandworms and spice. The sandworms are an essential part of the fascination of Dune. These great predators make the surface of Frank's imaginary planet Arrakis deadly to those who cannot learn to move with its dangerous rhythms. At the same time, they are the source of the hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic life-extending spice that gives the planet its unique value. And ultimately, they are the source of victory in the battle for control over the planet, since they open the desert to those brave enough to ride them. The name given to the sandworm by the natives of Arrakis is Maker. The title of this book, The Maker of Dune, pays homage both to this great imaginative creation and to the act of creative imagination itself. Though Dune is based on many well-conceived concepts, ultimately it gains its power from an imagination that is not controlled by the author, but summoned and ridden like the great worm from the sands. 
Dangers of the Superhero. When you look back at a work you've done, and seek to define its essential motivations, the intervening years have a way of refining the original intent. We go on learning, even about ourselves. Where Dune is concerned, I'd like to show the original spark, but that's now a conflagration. What I can do is take you through the chronology, show you the stepping stones that were the thoughts in my mind at the time. Dune began with a concept whose mostly unfleshed images took shape across about six years of research and one and a half years of writing. It was all in my head until it appeared on paper as I typed it. How did it begin? I conceived of a long novel, the whole trilogy as one book about the messianic convulsions that periodically overtake us. Demagogues, fanatics, con-game artists, the innocent and the not-so-innocent bystanders, all were to have a part in the drama. This grows from my theory that superheroes are disastrous for humankind, that even if we find a real hero, whatever that may be, eventually fallible mortals take over the power structure that always comes into being around such a leader. What better way to destroy a civilization, a society, or a race, than to set people into the wild oscillations which follow their turning over of their judgement and decision-making faculties to a superhero? It's the systems themselves that I see as dangerous. Systematic is a deadly word. Systems originate with human creators and with people who employ them. Systems take over and grind on and on. They are like a flood tide that picks up everything in its path. How do they originate? Personal observation has convinced me that in the power arena of politics slash economics, and in the logical consequence, war, People tend to give over every decision-making capacity to any leader who can wrap himself in the myth fabric of society. Hitler did it. Churchill did it. Franklin D. Roosevelt did it. Lenin did it. My favourite examples are John F. Kennedy and George Patton. Both fitted themselves into the flamboyant Camelot pattern, consciously assuming a bigger-than-life appearance. But the most casual observation reveals that neither was bigger than life. Both had our common human ailment, clay feet. This, then, was one of my themes. Don't give over all your critical faculties to people in power, no matter how admirable those people may appear. Beneath the hero's facade, you will find a human being who makes human mistakes. Enormous problems arise when human mistakes are made on the grand scale available to a superhero. And sometimes you run into another problem. It is demonstrable that power structures tend to attract people who want power for the sake of power, and that a significant proportion of such people are sufficiently imbalanced that they could be called insane. That was the beginning. Heroes are painful. Superheroes involve too many of us in disaster. All of this, however, encapsulates the stuff of high drama, of entertainment, and I'm in the entertainment business first. It's alright to include a pot of message, but that's not the key ingredient of wide readership. Yes, there are analogues in Dune of today's events. Corruption and bribery in the highest places, whole police forces lost to organised crime, regulatory agencies taken over by the people they are supposed to regulate. The scarce water of Dune is an exact analogue of oil scarcity. Chome is OPEC. But that was only the beginning. While this concept was still fresh in my mind, I went to Florence, Oregon, to do a magazine article about a US Department of Agriculture project there. The USDA was seeking ways to control coastal and other sand dunes. 
I already had written several pieces about ecological matters, but my superhero concept filled me with a concern that ecology might be the next banner for demagogues and would-be heroes, for the power seekers and others ready to find an adrenaline high in the launching of a new crusade. Our society, after all, operates on guilt which often serves only to obscure the real workings and to prevent obvious solutions. An adrenaline high can be just as addictive as any other kind of high. Ecology encompasses a real concern, however, and the Florence Project fed my interest in how we inflict ourselves upon our planet. I could begin to see the shape of a global problem, no part of it separated from any other, Social ecology, political ecology, economic ecology. It's an open-ended list which has never closed. Even after all the research and writing, I find fresh nuances, things in religions, in psychoanalytic theories, in linguistics, economics, philosophy, in theories of history, geology, anthropology, plant research, soil chemistry, in the meta-languages or pheromones, A new field of study rises out of this like a spirit rising from a witch's cauldron. The psychology of planetary societies. Out of all this came a profound re-evaluation of my original concepts. At the beginning, I was just as ready as anyone to fall into step, to seek out the guilty and punish the sinners, even to become a leader. Nothing, I felt, would give me more gratification than riding the steed of yellow journalism into crusade, doing the book which would right the old wrongs. At the start, I believed what the history books taught me, that we were what evolution had been seeking, that our society had achieved a pinnacle, that all humans are truly created equal. Re-evaluation raised haunting questions. I now know that evolution or devolution never ends short of death, that no society has ever achieved an absolute pinnacle, that all humans are not created equal. In fact, I believe attempts to create some abstract equalization create a morass of injustices that rebound on the equalizers. Equal justice and equal opportunities are ideals we should seek, but we should recognize that humans administer the ideals, and that humans do not have equal abilities. Power is the trap, political power and the other kinds which congregate around it, and words are a vehicle of power. Language is like a tar pit which has accumulated the fossils of our past. Re-evaluation taught me caution. I approached the problem with trepidation. Certainly, by the loosest of our standards, there were plenty of visible targets, plenty of the blind fanaticism and guilty opportunism at which to aim painful barbs. But how did we get that way? What makes a Nixon? What part do the meek play in creating the powerful? If a leader cannot admit mistakes, those mistakes will be hidden. Who says our leaders must be perfect? Where do they learn this? Enter the fugue. In music, the fugue is usually based on a single theme that is played many different ways. Sometimes there are free voices that do fanciful dances around the interplay. There can be secondary themes and contrasts in harmony, rhythm, and melody. From the moment a single voice introduces the primary theme, however, the whole is woven into a single fabric. What were my instruments in this fugue? Images, conflicts, things that turn upon themselves and become something quite different. Myth figures and strange creatures from the depths of our common heritage. Products of our technological evolution, our desires and our fears. As in an Escher lithograph, I involved myself with recurrent themes which turn to paradox. The central paradox concerns the human vision of time. What about Paul's gift of prescience, the Presbyterian fixation? 
For the Delphic Oracle to perform, it must tangle itself in a web of predestination. Yet predestination negates surprises, and in fact sets up a mathematically enclosed universe whose limits are always inconsistent, always encountering the unprovable. It's like a Cohen, a, a Zen mindbreaker. It's like the Cretan, Epimenides, saying all Cretans are liars. Each limiting, descriptive step you take drives your vision outward into a larger universe, which is contained in still a larger universe, ad infinitum, and in the smaller universes, ad infinitum. No matter how finely you subdivide time and space, each tiny division contains infinity. But this could imply that you can cut across linear time, open it like a ripe fruit, and see consequential connections. You could be prescient, predict accurately. Predestination and paradox once more. The flaw, I said, must lie in our methods of description, in languages, in social networks of meaning, in moral structures, and in philosophies and religions, all of which convey implicit limits where no limits exist. Paul Muad'Dib, after all, says this time after time. You want accurate prediction? Then you want today only, and you reject tomorrow. You are the ultimate conservative. You are trying to hold back movement in an infinitely changing universe. The verb to be does make idiots of us all. Of course, there are other themes and fugal interplays in Dune and throughout the trilogy. Dune Messiah performs a classic inversion of theme. Children of Dune expands the number of themes interplaying. I refuse, however, to provide further answers to this complex mixture. That, after all, fits the pattern of the fugue. You find your own solutions. Don't look to me as your leader. Caution is indeed indicated, but not the terror that prevents all movement. Hang loose. And when someone asks if you're starting a new cult, do what I do. Run like hell. The Sparks Have Flown Back in 1953, I was going to do an article, which I never finished, about the control of sand dunes. What many people don't realize is that the United States has pioneered in this, how to control the flow of sand dunes. There is a pilot project of the US Forest Service in Florence, Oregon, which has been so successful that it has been visited and copied by experts from Chile, Israel, India, Pakistan, Great Britain, and several other countries. I became fascinated by sand dunes, because I'm always fascinated by the idea of something that is seen in miniature and then can be expanded to the macrocosm, or which, but for the difference in time, in the flow rate and the entropy, is similar to other features that we wouldn't think were similar. Sand dunes are like the waves in a large body of water, they are just slower, and the people treating them as fluid learn to control them. The whole idea fascinated me, so I started researching sand dunes, and of course from sand dunes it's a logical idea to go into a desert. Now the way I accumulate data is that I start building file folders. Before long I saw I had far too much for an article, and far too much for a short story. I didn't really know what I had. But I had an enormous amount of data, with avenues shooting off at all angles to gather more. I finally saw I had something enormously interesting going for me about the ecology of deserts. And it was, for a science fiction writer anyway, an easy step from that to think, what if I had an entire planet that was a desert? During my studies of deserts, of course, and previous studies of religions, I had seen that many religions began in a desert atmosphere. I decided to put the two together because I don't think any one story should have any one thread. I build on a layer technique, and of course putting in religion and religious ideas with ecological ideas, you can play one against the other. 
And in studying sand dunes, you immediately get into not just the Arabian mystique, but the Navajo mystique, and the mystique of the Kalahari primitives and all. And you can't just stop with the people who are living in this kind of environment. You have to go on to how the environment works on the people, and how they work on their environment. You could look at this thing on the Oregon coast quite simply, if you wanted to, and say, yes, the sand was covering the highway, and that's bad, so we plant certain grasses, and that stops the sand from moving, and that's good, and that's the end of it. But if you start going into the mechanics of how the United States Forest Service set up this project, and all of the internal politics that were involved, then you would probably have a story there, a mainstream type of story. But I got off on a different kick, because of the science fiction angle, and the emphasis on ecology. It's been my belief for a long time that man inflicts himself on his environment. In Western culture, we tend to think that we can overcome nature by mechanical means. We accumulate enough data, and we subdue it. That is a one-pointed vision of man, because if you really start looking at man, Western man, you'll see that you could cut him right down the middle and he's blind on that backside. This is the point my wife, Bev, made earlier, talking about the death of the planetary ecologist in Dune being a very touching spot. A lot of the stories swung around this. It was very important that the planet killed the ecologist. He knew what was happening to him, and he understood it, and was technically capable of controlling it. The very fact that Kynes, who is the Western man in my original construction of the book, sees all of these things happening to him as mechanical things, doesn't subtract from the fact that he is still a part of this system. He'd lived out of rhythm with it, and he got in the trough of the wave, and it tumbled down on him. Ecology, as somebody said, and I use this in June. I'd, I'd like to attribute this, but I don't recall where I encountered it. I did read over 200 books as background for this novel. Ecology is the science of understanding consequences, just as it is today. We play the game today with counters called money, and we talk about laws of supply and demand and so on. There is a law of supply and demand, as long as you only have one form of exchange, but once you start getting other media of exchange, such as force, then the law of supply and demand gets different beats on it, different rhythms. Western man has assumed that all you need for any problem is enough force, and that there is no problem which won't submit to this approach, even the problem of our own ignorance. This assumption, you see, throws it out the window right there, because it is an asinine assumption, and the basic fallacy of Western man's approach to living. Now, I'm not saying that we should immediately drop this and adopt a Vedanta way of thinking. We need what I would call a science of wisdom. The moral norm, as I try to show in Dune, is something imposed upon people by their environment. Ethical law takes a step in another direction, and it says that I, the thinking animal, see the logical consequences of these moral actions, and maybe I'd better modify the moral law slightly by a higher ethical law. Dune shows the conflict between absolutes and the necessity of the moment. You might say it is an exercise in showing up the fallacy of absolutism. At any rate, pretty soon I realised that I had the place, and the characters, and the thrust for a monumental story, with a lot of action, people, and evolutionary processes displayed. Anyway, I, I wrote the last chapter of Dune, and I had the evolutionary outline of what had to happen, and it kept getting bigger. Of necessity, there were all kinds of things happening. At one point, I wrote a letter to my agent in New York, Lurton Blessingname, and I suggested that I might have a million-word novel. I finally just took out my ideas about how long it should be. I started building from the back. Where does it have to go? So parts of Children of Dune and Dune Messiah were already written before I completed Dune, and the last chapter of Dune was written in almost its final form. There were a few subtle changes, but not many. 
This was the first book where I really started carefully applying my ideas about the building of a rhythm within a story. Do you know how you choose a word in a given poem to control the beat of the poem? By changing the phraseology, placement of words, you can change that rhythm. You can slow it down, you can speed it up. Well, there is an analogous thing in prose. I think this point is quite easily defensible. Length of sentence, modifying clauses, variety of sentence structure, all these things control the pace of controlled reading. I work orally, because I think language was spoken long before it was written, and I think that, unconsciously, we still accept it as an oral transmission. I controlled the pace, so I have several rhythms built into the story deliberately. First, I use poetry as part of the process of writing, of loading the prose. In a sense, I use poetry the way a batter coming up to the plate swings three bats. If I want a passage to be evocative, I will write it as poetry. Then I conceal the poetry in the prose, in the paragraphing. I work on the beat to to fit the total rhythm of what I'm doing. I'm very conscious of the rhythmic structure of a novel. Any form of poetry is grist for my mill. I've done haiku and sonnets. I'm very fond of the lyric poetry that came from southeast France and northwest Italy in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. They are some of the most beautiful lyrics ever written, with a beat in them peculiar to the language of the time, and which English really cannot duplicate. This belief in the importance of oral language is also why I based the terminology in Dune on colloquial Arabic. I used linguistic rules, psycholinguistic rules, and an Elysian process to change it, because there's time passing. But I wanted to hold it close enough to the present colloquial Arabic, which is the language that survives. The two surviving kinds of language you get are church languages and idiomatic. That changing mechanism we use for communication, that oral tool, it's a very powerful instrument. It has its own inertial forces in it. It's mind-shaping, as well as being used by mind. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a lovely thing. I'm in love with language. I'm in love with language. If you are going to convey to a reader, and you want to give him the solid impression that he is not here and now, but that something of here and now has been carried to that faraway place and time, and it is desert, what better way to say to our culture that this is so, and not to say it overtly, but covertly, than to give him the language of that place? There is also a long-term rhythm in Dune. There is a coital rhythm all the way through the story, a very slow pace, increasing all the way through. When you get to the ending, I chopped the rhythm at a non-breaking point, so that the person reading skids out of the story, trailing bits of it with him. On this, I know I was successful, because people come to me and say they want more. The stories that are remembered are the ones that strike sparks from your mind, one way or another. It's like a grinding wheel. They touch you, and sparks fly. Now, we all have stories with which we go on after we finish reading them. I deliberately did this in Dune. I want the person to go on and construct for himself all these marvellous flights of fantasy and imagination. For example, you haven't had the Spacing Guild explained completely, just enough so that you know of its existence. Now, with lots of people, they've got to complete this, so they build it up in their own minds. Now, this is right out of the story. The sparks have flown. This is also true of the Bene Gesserit. Their whole mystique and so on is relatively unexplained. I was at Sonoma State last month, talking to a class there, and the question that seemed to attract the most attention from the class was the Bene Gesserit's use of the voice. There seemed to be a lot of agreement with the point of view that it's impossible to do this, and so I said, we do it all the time. It's amazing to me that anybody could even begin to question this as a fact of our existence, and they couldn't see it. So I said, well, I'll give you an example. I'm going to describe a man to you. 
You know this man, and I'm going to give you the task of controlling him by voice, after I've described him and after you recognize him. I said, this is a man who was in World War I as a sergeant. He came home from World War I to his small town in the Midwest, married his childhood sweetheart and went into his father's business. He raised two children, whom he doesn't understand and who don't understand him. He joined the VFW and the Legion, went on every picnic, every convention, lived by the double standard, he thought. Now, on the telephone, strictly by voice, I want you to make him mad. It's the simplest thing in the world. Now, I've drawn a gross caricature, but I'm saying that if you know the individual well enough, if you know the subtleties of his strengths and weaknesses, merely by the way you cast your voice, by the words you select, you can control him. Now, if you can do this in a gross way, obviously with refinements, you can do it in a much more subtle fashion, and it's done all the time in politics. It's a well-recognized thing in semantics. Hayakawa uses this example. You're talking, you've met somebody for the first time, maybe at a business meeting in a convention, and you get acquainted. You exchange views, and at the end of it you say, we must get together for lunch sometime. Now, in one case, the fellow will call you the next week, and you'll call him, and you will get together for lunch. He knows he's supposed to call you and make this luncheon date. In another case, you use the same phrase, and he knows that this is goodbye, I don't care to talk to you anymore. But it's the same phrase. At the same time, I've always been amused by the statement, or by the label, of psychological warfare. There can be no such thing as psychological warfare. If you develop a psychological weapon sufficiently that it is destructive to anyone, it is also destructive to you. It is like a sword without a handle, and if you grab it hard enough to wield it, you're going to cut yourself. The Bene Gesserit see this. You see how they keep themselves in the background? They want a user of power they can control. Another point. Dune is an exposition of the point that man himself is going to change. We have changed, but our changes, the actual basic change, is a gradual climb. I don't see this as progress, I see it as a sort of entropy, and as a growth of complexity. But this is such a slow process, and it takes thousands upon thousands of years. After I finished Dune, I felt kind of drained. I mailed it off, and Campbell raved about it, but he couldn't run it as an extended serial, so he had to cut it into two books. And then I went out and did some other things while I was thinking about the sequel. I'd just been very deep into a book that drained me, and I knew to make the others fit, I was going to have to do it again. I had to take some time off. It was kind of a psychological R&R period. I did some more research, but there wasn't really a way of delaying the process. I knew I had to have some more material. I went on building my file folders, but I knew in my guts that Dune Messiah was going to be the hardest of them all to write. To understand this, let's look at another element in how the Dune trilogy was conceived. Dune was set up to imprint on you, the reader, a superhero. I wanted you so totally involved with that superhero in all his really fine qualities, and then I wanted to show what happens in a natural evolutionary process and not betray reason or process. One of the threads in the story is to trace a possible way a messiah is created in our society, and I hope I was successful in making it believable. Here we have the entire process, or at least the large and some of the subtle elements of construction of this, both from the individual standpoint and from the way society demands this. A man must recognize the myth in which he is living, because he is a creation of his times. Look at what's happening to John F. Kennedy, who was a very earthy, real, and not totally holy man. So here we have a very likable person, but real in the flesh and blood sense, who, by the process of immolation, becomes something larger than life, far larger than life. Dune Messiah was the hardest book of the three to write, because it had to point forward and back. It had to begin in turning the whole process over. 
And there's a point here that I think should be made. Campbell turned down the sequel. His argument was that I had created an anti-hero in Paul in the sequel, and he had built his magazine, I'm oversimplifying, grossly oversimplifying, on the hero. It bothers people when their hero shows his clay feet, or dies, or does any of the things that heroes are not supposed to do. Now, it's my contention that the difference between a hero and an anti-hero is where you stop the story. And if you're true to life, then the story goes on, because human beings go on. You can confine your story to one individual, and therefore, as far as he's concerned, the story begins with birth and ends with death. But if you're dealing with larger movements, then there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the story. And this is one of the reasons, by the way, why I stop Dune the way I do. Deliberately building up and carrying momentum as though you were going down a slide and then just chopping it. So you skid out of the story with all this clinging to you. In a sense, Paul is like B.F. Skinner. Especially in Walden 2, Skinner is standing there saying, Please, create a world like this. Help me create a world like this, because this is the kind of world where I feel safe. And Paul makes the same kinds of decisions. He won't become his son. Do what his son does, you see. Let me explain. Utopia, envisaged by my contemporary society, is seen as a place not only where there are no wars, but where they are impossible. This requires a certain kind of control. Many painful things must be excluded or walled off. Now, this requires a particular kind of consciousness, if you think this through. If you really create that kind of world, you are lowering consciousness. That's the price you pay. You will, in a primitive sense, think in your belly and not in your head. Paul is unwilling to create that kind of a universe, which is the demand of all the people around him. It's their unconscious demand, as well as their conscious one. But there's another thing here, and I can state it for you very straightly. Human beings are not through evolving. And if they are going to survive, if we are going to survive as a species, we're going to have to do things which allow us to go on evolving. And that's it. It's a very simple statement. Yes, in Children of Dune, Leto is going to stop history. And I thought it was very clear that that's what he was doing. Paul was unwilling to do that. I saw him as the hero of a Greek tragedy, in a sense. Heroism was his Achilles heel. That was his flaw. He insisted on playing out the track, but choosing the one that to him was most acceptable. And he was willing to sacrifice anything for that, to give his conscience rest. He insisted on being human to the end. Leto gives up his humanity. The Campbell Correspondence June 3, 1963 Dear Frank, Congratulations, you are now the father of a 15-year-old Superman, but I bet you aren't gonna like it. This is a grand yarn, I like it, and I'm going to buy it, but I have some comments that may make you want to make a slight change in the ending. As the father, and or stepfather, of several literary supermen, I've learned something about their care and upbringing. They're very recalcitrant, also hard to live with. You can't think like a superman. You can't imagine his motivations. He's altruistic and superman, which means he will sacrifice the highest good you can imagine for the sake of something you couldn't understand, even if he explained it to you. He is gentle, which, when properly defined, means that he is kindly but absolutely ruthless. Like the man who loves horses and sorrowfully shoots the stallion with a broken leg. I doubt the stallion would approve of that action. No human being can write about the thoughts, philosophy, motivations, or evaluations of a superman. There are two ways that supermen have been handled successfully in science fiction. Method one is that Van Voigt used in Slan, and that's what you've got here so far. 
You don't talk about the Superman, don't try to portray the Superman, but show a super boy who hasn't yet developed his powers out and beyond your ability to conceive of them. Method two is that used by Norvell W. Page in But Without Horns in The Old Unknown. The Superman never appears on stage at all. You encounter only people who have met him and the results of actions he's taken. You never meet him, and never do understand what his motivations are. If Dune is to be the first of three, and you're planning on using Paul in the future ones, oh man, you've set yourself one hell of a problem. You might make the next one somewhat more plottable if you didn't give Paul quite so much of the super duper. You'd have someone exceedingly hard to defeat, and yet having certain definite limitations, if you gave him just one talent, the ability of trans-temporal clairvoyance. Now, that could work like this. A man remembers the past he has experienced, but nobody knows how that's done. Suppose it's done by a faculty that any remembering entity actually has, of being able to see across time, and perceive the actual original event. When you remember going to the beach for a swim last summer, you perceive across time the actual event. Now, this time scanning would inherently allow you to perceive anything, anywhere, anywhere, which would simply drive you completely nuts. Data is useless unless you can organize and relate it. Unlimited access to unlimited data would require infinite time to scan it all. And until you've scanned nearly all of it, you wouldn't know what data went with what. So normal people use as an index mark, as a guideline, the I was there factor in using their transtemporal clairvoyance. You can remember what you heard, saw, felt, tasted, thought, and your mood. Once in a while, somebody slips a bit and gets somebody else's I was there guideline. If he can remember anyone else's memories, he would be very hard to defeat. Notice, if I could remember what you remembered, I would, in effect, have telepathy. I would not know what you were now thinking, but I would be able to remember what you were thinking a millisecond ago, which amounts to the same thing. If before he can remember someone else's memories, he must identify the eye track, if it is essential that he first have a takeoff point of direct contact, then the only way an enemy could keep Paul from knowing his plans would be to make sure Paul never encountered him. To find the eye track of one individual among the n billion people in the galaxy would be impossible without a contact point. If you wind up this yarn with Paul acquiring that talent, all the present explanations can come out of it, i.e. he can remember back along Baron Harkonnen's line, Uwes, Kynes's, the Fremen he encountered, etc., to get the whole present background. But he doesn't have so much precognition that you can't build a workable plot for the next yarn. You know the trouble with time travel stories. If the guy has a time travel machine and the villain kidnaps the heroine, there's no sweat. The hero doesn't chase the villain, he looks annoyed, steps into the time machine, goes back 30 seconds before the villain's villainy, and tells the heroine, Hey honey, that stupid louse, Rudolph the villain, is about to kidnap you. He's making a nuisance of himself, isn't he? Let's go somewhere else. Give your hero precognition that works, and it's sort of like old-fashioned Presbyterian predestination. There's no use trying, because he already knows what has to come, and everybody else is stuck with it, whether they like it or not. However, with all the data sources he gets with everybody's memories, he still doesn't know the future. He knows what they think the future is, and what he thinks it'll be, but not what it'll be. Incidentally, I find that the following is a useful analogy, describing the process of time. Imagine an immensely tall glass cylinder filled with water. The bottom of the thing is sitting in a tank of liquid air. Naturally, the water in the bottom is frozen solid, and as heat drains out the liquid air, the, cr the surface of crystallization advances steadily up the column of water. The interface between the still liquid water and solidified ice is the instant now. The frozen ice is the past, and the free liquid water is the future. 
Now, when a substance crystallizes, there are intermolecular forces at work that reach out from the already solid crystal to drag in and align free molecules of the liquid, forcing each new molecule added to the crystal to fall into a precise alignment with the already crystallized molecules. The interface, in other words, is not a no-thickness geometrical surface, it's a volume. Liquid well away from the interface is really pretty free, but liquid molecules near the interface are already subjected to alignment forces and are being dragged into place. Moreover, some crystals manage to grow faster than others. There will be spikes of crystal reaching out well ahead of the slower growing mass. If you watch the way crystals grow, Epsom salts crystallizing when a solution is poured out on a pane of glass, for instance, it gives a remarkable mental picture of how alignment forces reach out from the past through the instant now and into the future, and yet do not completely determine the future, because there are liquid zones among the outreaching crystal forces. One other item that makes supermen such nasty people to live with when they're 15-year-old supermen they are adolescent demigods, and personally, I can't imagine anything more horrible. An adolescent, no matter how intelligent, is not wise. He's only smart. Furthermore, adolescents have the most ghastly, horrible tendency to be sure they have the answers to all the world's problems, and it is only the stupid conservatism of the old fogies that makes them reject it. And having all the knowledge in the world means nothing, because all knowledge is filtered through the individual's attitudes and beliefs. Can you imagine a sincere, dedicated, enormously intelligent, practically omniscient teenager with the typical teenage tendency to be sure he's right about matters that only adult experience can make understandable? Hitler was sure he was right. So was Torquemada. The ordinary, ev everyday adolescent is something of a problem to live with. A real, genius-grade adolescent is much worse to live with, because he's just as certain he has the proper, logical, and righteous answers figured out, and being extremely smart is very difficult to unconvince. Want to try it with Paul? when he's decided at age 16 how the galaxy should be rearranged and right away quick? God preserve us. No one else would be able to. Regards, John W. Campbell, Editor. June 8th, 1963. Dear John, sincere thanks for the two-edged congratulations. As for liking the new parenthood, let me put my reaction this way. The blessing appears not only to be mixed, but more on the order of a parfait that tangled with Mr. Waring's blender. Out of the resultant mass, however, I still can distinguish two ingredients. A sense of gratification that this long labour has been favoured by someone whose judgement I admire, and a sort of small mouse feeling in the face of the mountain of work I can see ahead. Perhaps it is naivete, but I'm flattered by the length of your letter. I have editing chores of my own, in addition to writing, and I know what happens to your time. On second thought, what does happen to your time? So, to the subject of time. Your analogy of an advancing surface of crystallization touched a particular chord of interest in me. With your permission, I may adapt it, or part of it, to my needs. First, though, here's how I see the time and plot problem for a sequel to Dune. You will recall that Paul has a vision of time as the surface of a gauze kerchief undulating in the wind. As far as it goes, this is accurate, but immature. It's the child vision. Clarification is yet to come, and he isn't going to like what he sees. Think now of a coracle. A chip floating on a stormy sea. The man of vision is in the coracle. When it rises to a crest, he can see around him, provided he has his eyes open at the moment and it's light enough to see. In other words, provided conditions are right. And what does he see? 
He sees the peaks of many waves. He sees troughs and flanks of his own wave complex. Troughs of subsequent waves are increasingly hidden from him. Considered one way, your surface of crystallization is similar to this stormy sea concept. If you could photograph that surface on movie film at one frame per minute and view it at 16 frames per second, the surface would heave and undulate in a similar manner as it advanced. It's the idea of an advancing surface that catches my interest. Now consider time as a system with its own form of obedience to its own form of entropy. What disrupts it? What causes time storms? Among other things, a man of vision, with his eyes open in good light and on the crest of the wave, can cause time storms. If you see that which is not, that's hallucination. If you see that which is not yet, you give the not yet a feedback circuit for which it is not yet prepared. You set up a channel for convection currents across regions delicately susceptible to the slightest deflection. Think of the region beyond your surface of crystallization. Within this region, there's another barrier area within which the molecular tip over toward one crystallizing system or another becomes extremely delicate. Prescience, then, shakes down to this. Man of vision opens his inner eyes. He may find it dark all around him. He may find himself in the trough of the wave, in which case he sees only the flanks of adjoining waves towering over him and a limited curve of his own trough. He may find himself on a crest in good light, in which case he quick looks all around. Vision ends. The time he saw may maintain itself in similar motivations for a period, but it is in motion, it is changing, and the very action of his looking has accelerated and twisted and distorted the directions of change. Do you think John the Baptist could predict all the outcomes of his prophecies? Add the further complication that there are many men of vision with varying degrees of aptitude, most philosophies of time I've encountered contain an unwritten convention that this thing is something ponderous, read Juggernaut, and requires monstrous, universe-swaying forces to deflect it to any reasonable degree. Once set in motion, they say, time tends to be orderly in its direction. Obviously, there is in mankind a profound desire for a universe which is orderly and logical, but the desire for a thing should be a clue to actualities. Local areas of order exist, but beyond is chaos. Time, in the larger sense, is disorderly harridan. I'll digress on this bit later. We can still see the thumb upraised in the Roman arena, yes. Its effects are all around us if we have the eyes for it. But we are looking backward here, not forward. While we're looking backward, then, what of the Natuvian herdsman who carved himself from a whistle, who carved himself a whistle from a twig to while away his hours on a hillside? Is there a line between him and a Greek herdsman playing the panpipes near Athens, and between that herdsman and Bach? What of the sidelines, then, twisting away to where? And what of the Chilean nomad crossing the site of the future Gersu Babylon? Does the stone he accidentally kicks aside influence the future location of a temple? If this isn't enough complication, consider the negative side, the downturned thumb, the uncarved whistle, the unkicked stone. What if, what if, what if, what if? What if a wandering cow had distracted the Natufian gentleman, and he'd left the whistle-building to another herdsman in another culture? The line might still wind its way to bark, but over other hills and dales, and a person gifted with both views would hear a difference, perhaps a profound difference. We've narrowed our focus here down to a two-value system, on-off, yes-no, however. What we have in actuality is multi-valued, extended-spectrum systems, magnificent degrees and permutations of variability. The time surface is in a constant state of flux. It's only when we look backward and isolate a line out of context that we perceive any degree of order. 
And if we take this order and project it into the future, the distance during which it will continue to hold true is distinctly limited. Couldn't you visualize certain possible changes in conditions which would make some of our laws of physics inoperable? The time surface is in a constant state of flux. One of your crystal extrusions may project for 10 million years ahead of the surround surface in one cross-section instant, only to be lopped off in the next. There's a fascinating side consideration here if we continue viewing this as crystal. It exists one instant and is not in the next instant. What happens to its components if you give them substance? Do they enter the surrounding solution? If so, where? Let's isolate that cross-section, see above, idea for a moment. This is the abstraction process, the taking out of context, the stopping, the isolation. You limit your knowledge of a subject when you do this with any flowing process. To understand a flowing process, you have to get with it, flow with it. This is the larger meaning within the Gestalten concept. I promised a certain digression earlier, one among many, and this appears to be the moment for it. Time, the disorderly harridan. We are, of course, considering chaos versus order. Within this, there is always the unspoken judgment. One thing is right, and the opposite is wrong. So let's look at the logical projection of completely orderly time and a universe of absolute logic. Aren't we saying here that it's possible to know everything? Then doesn't this mean that a system of knowing will one day enclose itself? And isn't that a sort of prison? For my part, I can conceive of infinite systems. I find this reassuring, the chaos reassuring. It means that there are no walls, no limits, no boundaries except those that man himself creates. Magnificent degrees and permutations of variability. Now, of course, we build walls and erect barriers and enclosed systems and we isolate and cut cross-sections to study them. But if we ever forget that these are bubbles which we are blowing, we're lost. If we ever lose sight of the possibility that a wall we've erected may someday have to be torn down, then we've bricked ourselves in with the Amontillado, and we can yell for the love of God, Montresor, all we like. There'll be nobody listening outside who gives a fat damn. We seem to have wandered somewhat off the time track, but now you know some of the background which flows over into my stories, and which I'm pouring right now into a sequel to Dune. You may understand now, also, while why time travel stories have always been somewhat disappointing to me. They may have excellent plotting, wonderful linearity, tremendous sense of direction, but little or no elbow room. Before winding this up, I'd like to take one more side trip through the concept of how long. The length of an operation, of course, depends on the viewpoint and the field of operations. Through a combination of circumstances too tedious to detail here, I found myself one morning a split second from death by impending accident, during a period of time that could not possibly have been more than one twenty-fifth of a second, I calmly considered at least eight distinct solutions, examining them in great detail, calling on memory aspects that wandered through a number of cross-references that could only be referred to as enormous. Out of this, and still within this shutter blink of time, I decided upon a solution that had its main inspiration in a circus trick I may have seen just once, and I altered that circus trick to suit my needs. The solution worked precisely as I had visualized it. I could cover at least ten of these single space pages with elements that went into that solution and still not exhaust them. Obviously, there are certain conditions under which our view of time may be compressed to the point where, for all practical purposes, the process is instantaneous. Consider the hours-long dream that occurs between the ringing of the alarm and the hand reaching out to shut the damn thing off. Another way of looking at this is to say that the time it takes for a given event 
a vision, for example, may be almost interminable for one person, the one with the vision, but practically instantaneous to an outside observer. We can postulate, also, that external time, in the larger sense, has different speeds and currents for different viewpoints, that not only is the course within a given locale variable, but also the local speed effect varies. These ideas, then, form some of the boundaries, man-made, of Paul's prescience. He's in a situation where he must learn new ground rules. There are rules, but he has to learn a shifting frame of reference to recognise them. He's within the coracle. While on that word, I might add that I've been using the title Muad'Dib for the first draft of the sequel. I think, though, that this would be a better title. See Oracle. If I tell you any more now, I'll be giving away the sequel. It goes without saying, though, that your comments will be received with great interest and open mind. Tell me if what I've said here meets your plot objections. If not, I'm perfectly willing to find some common ground for ending the first story that will hold up in subsequent ones. Warmest regards, Frank Herbert. P.S. I quite understand that what I've been discussing here is the subjective relationship between real time and time dilation, but this strikes me as a subject which deserves much greater exploration, especially when it regards what we commonly refer to as the speed of thought. Sandworms of Dune Even while he is saying flattering things about my books, John Leonard of the New York Times warns that someday my head is going to fall off because it contains so many feverish inventions, extraterrestrial theories of justice, moral sinews, and splendid entertainments. Lest Mr. Leonard's dire prediction come true, I will unburden my head here, and now of some of that load, namely the myth construction which went into the material in this recording. The elements of any mythology must grow from something profoundly moving, something which threatens to overwhelm any consciousness which tries to confront the primal mystery. Yet, after the primal confrontation, the roots of this threat must appear as familiar and necessary as your own flesh. For this, I give you the Sandworms of Dune. They are the mindless guardians of the terrible treasure. They live in the deeps, and when they surface, they threaten all who come upon them. To those who must live daily with such monsters, however, the sandworms are the familiar old man of the desert. In the lair of this mystery, you learn to walk in a different way. You assume a new awareness. Still, this terrifying presence supports your life. The sandworms are the ultimate source of Dune's wealth. Their bodies give up the melange spice, which extends lifespans. And they also produce most of Dune's oxygen, created in the monstrous chemical dissipation of heat, which is produced by the friction of their passage. The dragon, who carries the pearl of great price in its mouth, this is the mythological equivalent of Dune's sandworms. When you watch the dragon dances at a Chinese New Year celebration, you participate in a similar mystery to that of Dune's Fremen. Here is Erebus, the son of chaos and brother of night. It is darkness personified in the passage of Hades. Yet Erebus is also the father of Aether, the clean air, and of Hemera, day. Incest is clearly stated, because the mother of those familiar children is the sister, night. Another matter stated with equal clarity is that women remain the keepers of the dark mysteries, and that men invade such matters at their own peril. Thus, the sandworms of Dune and the trials of the male protagonists. The death of a sandworm contributes the substance which arms consciousness for the transcendence of time. This is true whether it occurs in the sanctuary of a siege cavern or by the natural process of the open desert. To use such a substance, you pay the great price. 
You no longer live in the protective and gregarious midst of your own kind. Now you are the shaman, alone and forced to master your own madness. You have grasped the tail of the ultimate tiger. To fulfill its role, the sandworm is one vector in a circular process. Before its metamorphosis, it is the sand trout, the leathery creature which encapsulates and withholds Dune's other treasure, water. Thus, the conditions which support it in its new form, it creates the waterless desert. And what is poison to the sandworm? Water. In each instance, the elements of the mystery are intimately related. Sand trout and water, sandworm and spice. The high value of the geriatric spice rests in its life extension for the users. This naturally sets the stage for life-threatening conflicts. I am saying here that the extension of human lifespan cannot be an unmitigated blessing. Every such acquisition requires its new consciousness, and a new consciousness assumes that you will confront dangerous unknowns. You will go into the deeps. It's an old, old story. Every terra incognita has its own rules which you must learn if you wish to survive. When you remain on familiar turf, you know where to walk. You recognize the dangerous creatures which share your world. The poisonous snakes have been identified, and there are antitoxins. In some respects, it is pure myth, but your mythology does incorporate lessons of survival. If you enter new terrain, however, you are the pioneer, the explorer, and you are expendable. That is your function when you go into the deeps. It's no wonder that our ancestors both admired and feared the ones who dared the perils of inner exploration, whether that exploration was ignited by peyote or Amanita muscaria, or by trials of pain and self-induced trance. And it's no wonder that such fears remain with us today. Our mythology is not at all that different from the Bushman's. These elements remain so deeply rooted in Western culture that to profess even a casual understanding and belief in them is often enough to invite emotional reactions, anything from derision to physical attack. That's why I always point out that I don't necessarily believe in such things, I just write about them. There, my head feels much lighter. Frank Herbert Port Townsend, Washington, November 11th, 1977.